0: As always, I'm thrilled by how quickly this podcast has grown. Your enthusiasm for this project is uh, already way beyond anything I could have hoped for. And so, as our downloads head towards the hundreds of thousands, I wanted to say thank you again, of course. Thanks for listening and for all of the comments and corrections and uh, connections to interview subjects that you continue to send my way. But... Really and truly, if you want to help this project continue, uh, please just take two minutes and do this one little thing. Go to iTunes and go to our podcast page on iTunes. There's a link on the website if you can't find it. And leave a rating and or a review of the Internet History Podcast. Ratings and reviews help more people find us. So seriously, taking two minutes to do just that one little thing is by far the best thing you could possibly do to show your appreciation and to help us keep going. Thanks. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 4, Part 2, How Yahoo Became the Web's First Great Company. When we last left our narrative, back in Part 1 of this chapter, Jerry Yang and David Philo had just made the momentous decision to turn their research hobby, their online directory, into a real business. And for all the accolades we can give to Netscape for being the company that brought about the internet's big bang, we really have to give credit to Yahoo for becoming the internet's first great company. Whatever you think of Yahoo's status in the web firmament these days, there's no denying how much Yahoo was a pioneer when it came to laying the groundwork for what the internet economy would become. Yahoo, like AOL, as we've said, was sort of training wheels for getting people comfortable with the internet. Like AOL, Yahoo pioneered a sense of community and of place in a cybernetic, intangible environment. It's impossible to think of things like Facebook now without the groundwork that Yahoo laid. And like AOL, Yahoo was the internet's first great brand. Yahoo was the internet for a lot of newbies in the early 90s. But Yahoo is also such a great case study because it was the test case for the business model that to this day underpins most of the internet we know and love. Advertising. Facebook, Google, Twitter, Reddit, that nice message board you know and love, all those are sustained by advertising. And Yahoo was, if not the first company to prove advertising could work on and subsidize the web, was at the very least the first big success that moved the web and the internet in general towards this business model. Think about that. There are plenty of companies on the internet that make their living based on e-commerce, but most of the internet you use every day is supported largely by advertising as a business model. So this chapter continues our look at Yahoo as the eventual winner of the search engine wars, but also as the pioneer in the economics and business model that underpins the internet as we know it today. As Jerry Yang would later tell Fortune magazine, quote, David Philo had it in his gut very early on that Yahoo could ultimately be a consumer interface to the web Rather than simply a search engine or a piece of technology. We weren't really sure you could make a business out of it, though. End quote. Given the amazing audience numbers that we've seen Yahoo was posting at this point, million hit days and well over 100,000 unique visitors every day, interested parties in late 1994 and early 1995 were already forming a line at Yahoo's trailer door. Reuters, MCI, Microsoft, CNET, Time Warner, and even a pre-IPO Netscape all met with the two to see if some form of partnership or buyout was possible. In order to build bridges, in fact, Netscape reached out and solved Yahoo's hosting problem by agreeing to host the site temporarily on one of Netscape's spare Silicon Graphics servers. Yang and Philo would be able to finally leave Stanford behind and strike off on their own. Given the momentum and intense interest from big players in Yahoo, they quickly decided to take the leap into entrepreneurship. The venture capitalists came calling as well, and now the boys were ready to talk seriously to them. But the money men were a bit skeptical about whether or not Yahoo even was a business. Netscape might have seemed like a dubious proposition when it was looking to raise funds. Barely making money, kind of, sort of, giving away their product for free, unproven market, that sort of thing. But at least Netscape Navigator was a software package. People understood that software could be sold, and quite profitably. There was precedent for that sort of thing. And Netscape was proving that it could make real money providing support and server packages to supplement their software. Yahoo, on the other hand, wasn't even software. It was a service, a destination, a directory, a glorified list. There was almost nothing proprietary about the product. Anyone could make a list of websites. Furthermore, it was a service that you could never charge for. Yang and Philo were convinced, and quite rightly so, I think, that the day they started charging users to search Yahoo would be the last day users ever visited Yahoo again. If Netscape's business seemed intangible, Yahoo's seemed downright hypothetical. Yang began circulating a scratch-together business plan, but failed to impress the VCs who were sniffing around. Even a March 1995 feature story in Newsweek didn't overcome the skepticism. Among others, Kleiner Perkins took a pass, and this despite the close ties that Yahoo was forming with its big internet investment, Netscape. But one of the VCs who made the trek to the messy Stanford trailer before Yang and Philo vacated was a man named Mike Moritz. Moritz would later describe the squalor in the trailer as, quote, every mother's idea of the bedroom that she wished her sons never had, unquote. Moritz and his team quickly quizzed Yang and Philo among the empty pizza boxes and humming workstations, asking the obvious question, quote, so how much are you going to charge subscribers, end quote. As Yang himself would later remember it, quote, Dave and I looked at each other and said, Well, it's going to be a long conversation. But two hours later, we convinced them that Yahoo should be free. End quote. Moritz was a young 40 year old general partner at the VC firm Sequoia Capital. Sequoia had once funded such Silicon Valley luminaries as Apple, Atari, Cisco, and Oracle but it had not yet dipped its toe into internet waters. When Moritz took Yahoo's business plan back to his firm, he encountered the same skepticism from the other partners that Yang and Philo had run into at every other VC firm in town. The product was free. Yang and Philo had absolutely zero business background or acumen. And what was to stop somebody else, Microsoft, AOL, anybody really, from simply making their own directory. And then there was that crazy name. The very moniker Yahoo was enough to make some of the other partners at Sequoia dubious, sight unseen. The vision that Moritz used to argue Yahoo's case was the one put to him by Yang and Philo themselves. It sounded like a mix of Netscape strategy with a bit of AOL sprinkled in. Yahoo, the reasoning went, already had millions of loyal users. Surely there would be growth to those user numbers and eventually some way to monetize them. As more and more users were coming to the web, Yahoo could be the friendly guide that would hold the hands of new users and lead them out into the void. If there was an elevator pitch, it was that Yahoo had the chance to be the TV guide for the internet. Like Yahoo, TV Guide simply provided information that any other entity could aggregate, and yet TV Guide at the time was the largest circulation magazine on the planet. Turns out that there's value in being the trusted directory for something. Sequoia eventually bought this pitch. The factor that tipped the scales in Yahoo's favor was the fact that Moritz was pitching a revenue model that the other Sequoia partners knew very well. Advertising supported mass media. Moritz reasoned that, hey, radio was free, television was free, and both of these were supported by advertisers who paid good money to reach an audience of millions. As Moritz asked, quote, So why would the internet be any different? The trick strategically was to get an audience, and at some point the advertisers would come. End quote. Yahoo had an audience of millions, and if the web kept growing at the rate it was growing at, who knew how many hundreds of millions could be reached in the near future? By that logic, even the wacky company name could be seen as a plus rather than a minus. If done the right way, Yahoo could create a brand that would be fun, funny, irreverent, hip, in short, perfectly suited for the burgeoning internet audience. And after all, as Don Valentine, the legendary founder of Sequoia, put it, quote, A long time ago, we helped finance a company called Apple, end quote. That investment in a company with a kind of offbeat name certainly turned out handsomely. And so in April of 1995, Sequoia invested $1 million in exchange for one-fourth of the newly incorporated Yahoo!, this investment would turn out quite handsomely for Sequoia as well. Because by early 1999, Sequoia's initial $1 million was worth approximately $8 billion. At the peak of Yahoo's market valuation in the dot-com era, by some measures the value of that initial quarter of Yahoo would have been worth more than $30 billion. With its first infusion of cash... Yahoo went about becoming the business that Yang and Philo had thrown their academic careers over for. 1,500 square feet of office space was secured at the auspicious address of 110 Pioneer Way. Engineers were brought on board to help Philo set up Yahoo's servers and technologies in-house. The Yahoo.com domain was finally registered finance folk were brought on to structure Yahoo like a lean, mean startup, an adult, quote, adult, was brought in to be CEO in the person of Tim Kugel, a veteran of both tech startups and the tech establishment company Motorola. Like Yang and Philo, Kugel was a veteran of the Stanford Engineering Department. And as for the two original founders, Yang took the official title of Chief Yahoo and continued to be the face of the company. Philo took the title of Cheap Yahoo and dedicated himself to keeping the tech side running smoothly and cheaply. Most importantly, a cadre of new hires was fashioned into a team of professional web surfers who would help build out the Yahoo directory and stay on top of the exploding web. These professional surfers, who would eventually number more than 50, were expected to each add as many as a 1,000 new sites by hand to the directory each day. They were overseen by a longtime friend of Yang and Philo's, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to pronounce this right, Sindra Sinvritsan, who became the chief ontologist, the head of Yahoo's directory efforts. Like Netscape before it, Yahoo largely adopted the Get Big Fast strategy. This was partly because it had to. For one thing, the web, of course, was growing exponentially, and Yahoo had taken on the task of trying to keep up with and cataloging it. But there was also the matter of competition. One by one, the other search sites, Excite, Infoseek, Lycos, and the others, had all taken various forms of venture investment and were eager to prove that algorithmic search really was superior to a simple internet guide. And then there was also the little matter of Yahoo's easily replicated directory, because Again, if an established player copied Yahoo's glorified list, what would prevent Yahoo from getting steamrolled? David Philo himself admitted, quote, It wasn't rocket science. We didn't have patents or anything like that. Someone smart with resources could have done the same thing. End quote. It was a threat that Yahoo knew all too well, in fact, because Back when Yang and Philo had been shopping the company to investors, America Online had made a $2 million buyout offer. The offer was a bit lowball, and to hear Yang tell the story, it wasn't exactly friendly. Quote, they tried to buy us, and we said no, and they said, we'll crush you in two months. End quote. AOL was saying point-blank that it could, and would, build its own directory. It seems that Steve Case had learned some negotiation tactics, or at least negotiation language, from his run-ins with Bill Gates. But Yahoo was bold enough to spurn AOL and go off on its own, because Yang was confident that his directory had a unique relationship with its users. First of all, it had been first— And it would become an article of faith during the dot-com era that being first to market on the internet frontier conferred a magical first-mover advantage on whomever was so fortunate. Certainly, Yahoo's experience did nothing to disprove this theory. Those early months as the default search tool on Netscape Navigator had sown the seeds of familiarity and loyalty among early internet adopters. Once they learned about Yahoo, they came back, again and again, almost automatically. Even when competing services showed up on this internet prairie, users had a tendency to stick with what they knew, so long as it still worked. The first mover advantage meant that Yahoo had a big head start in the land grab for market and mindshare among early web devotees. This was a lead that was Yahoo's to lose. In order to stay ahead, Yahoo decided that it would do what no one else had, at least intentionally, done on the web up to that point, brand itself. As early as June of 1995, Jerry Yang declared that Yahoo would become, quote, the first great internet brand, end quote. With millions of users already familiar with Yahoo and tens of millions of newbies on their way, becoming the first internet brand would be invaluable. The thinking was, quote, "If you're a brand name that people know, your site is where they're going to go first." End quote." The woman I just quoted was Karen Edwards, another early hire who was brought on to direct Yahoo's marketing efforts. With previous experience at Clorox and 20th Century Fox, Edwards would help Yahoo do something that was completely radical for the time—advertise on TV, print, and radio. Yahoo was the first internet company to do so in a large way, with zippy, hip ads matching the slick name with the brash image of the site overall. In today's era, when every other ad is seemingly for a .com, it might be a little hard to believe, but... When Americans first found themselves being asked, Do you Yahoo? It was entirely a new thing. Yahoo quickly became one of the internet's most recognizable names, familiar even to the vast, unwashed Americans who were not yet even online. With its quirky purple logo, Yahoo was soon everywhere, from hockey rinks to billboards to t-shirts. Business Week said that Yahoo projected, quote, a cool California image, hip, but not rad, easy to use, but not simplistic, end quote. By 1998, this hip-but-not-rad service was better known to the average American consumer than direct competitors like Excite or Lycos, and even better known than behemoths like Microsoft. The branding was instrumental in helping Yahoo stand out from the scrum of the search pack, but it also played a vital role in turning what was an unpatentable service, a directory into a valued strategic and defensible product. Yahoo was smart in turning its lack of technical uniqueness into a strength. From the very beginning, Yahoo denied that it even was a technology company. Again, Yang told Fortune magazine, The fundamental bet we are making is that we are a media company, not a tools company. If we are a tools company, we're not going to survive. Microsoft will just take over our space. If we are a publication, like Fortune, or a Time, then we create brand loyalty then we have a sustainable business. End quote. Making Yahoo the first great brand of the internet era would serve Yahoo well throughout the entire dot com era. When later asked why Yahoo enjoyed a greater stock market valuation than rivals such as Excite, a Wall Street analyst would reply quote, Yahoo is cool. It's not a technology company, it's a brand, it's an article of culture. End quote. The branding efforts were paid for by additional rounds of venture capital investments. In November of 1995, Reuters, Ziff Davis, and the Japanese firm SoftBank kicked in a new $5 million round. Yahoo was able to command a $40 million valuation in this round, quite impressive considering it had valued itself at only $4 million a mere eight months earlier. And even that would look like chump change a few months later, when SoftBank doubled down by investing an additional $100 million all on its own. Investors were suddenly falling over each other to hand Yahoo money for two reasons. For one, the Big Bang had gone off, as we've documented, in September of 1995 when Netscape had gone public itself. The internet was hot. Wall Street was in search of net companies that seemed to have the same growth trajectory as Netscape. Search engines had the largest audience of netheads anywhere, and Yahoo was the leader of that pack. By February of 1996, Yahoo was seeing more than 6 million visitors every single day. Those traffic numbers were double what Yahoo had seen just five months before. The growth was exactly what Wall Street and other investors were looking for. And now that Wall Street was living in a post-Netscape world, the pressure was building for Yahoo to follow in its footsteps and go public as well. The company actually didn't need to, because the second SoftBank investment had left Yahoo with quite the war chest. But Excite, Lycos, and Infoseek were all filing to go public, and profit by lining up in Netscape's slipstream. Yahoo couldn't turn down the opportunity to raise even more money and maintain its lead against its search rivals. Plus, Netscape had shown that there was an incredible amount of free publicity to be gained by a successful high-profile IPO. By sitting out the party, Yahoo risked ceding its role as the industry leader, at least in the eyes of Wall Street. Excite and Lycos were to enjoy moderately successful IPOs in early April of 1996. InfoSeek went public a few months later. Yahoo! went public on April 12, 1996, selling 2.6 million shares, initially pricing at $13 a share but seeing a first trade price of $24.50. Over the course of that first trading day, The stock peaked at $43 before ending the day at $33. This represented a 154% leap over the offer price, and that meant that it had a better opening day than even Netscape's 105% first day pop. More importantly, this made Yahoo's market value $850 million, which compared favorably to Excite's $206 million market cap and Lycos's $241 million, respectively. As planned, Yahoo held on to the search site crown. All the other search sites would look like pretenders to the throne going forward. Yahoo now had hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. Yang and Philo had each pocketed about $130 million on paper, But Yang said that the IPO had merely induced, quote, panic. No, not panic, but anxiety, end quote. That was because there was one looming problem. For all the dollar signs in Yahoo's bank account, there wasn't actually much on Yahoo's bottom line. In comparison, in its first quarter as a public company, Netscape had recorded revenue of $56 million, but for Yahoo, in its first quarter as a public company, it could only report revenue of $3.2 million. And even that was better than 1995, when Yahoo had reported revenue of only $1.4 million for the entire year. Again, if Netscape had gone public with questionable revenues, Yahoo had taken things to the next lower level. But investors had shown that they were willing to invest in unprofitable young web companies so long as they could show growth. So Yahoo would be okay as long as it could show continued audience growth, and as long as it could find a way to monetize that audience one day, preferably soon. The big issue was this. The internet had been born free of advertising and free of commerce of any kind. Internet culture had developed with an emphasis on free, and had a downright hostility to advertising especially. But now that the internet was in the midst of a gold rush, the pressure to make cyberspace pay was overwhelming. And advertising was the obvious business model for any website that wanted to remain free for its users. Yahoo, of course, was not the first site to host ads, as we've seen in the previous chapters, Prodigy pioneered serving ads at the bottom of every page it delivered on its online service. And as we said in part one of this chapter, GNN had sponsored links as early as 1994. The first ad was sold to a Silicon Valley law firm, Heller, Ehrman, White, and McAuliffe. And if you've listened to some of the interviews for this chapter especially the one with Craig Kennerick, then you'll remember that the first banner ad premiered back in October 27th of 1994 on Hotwired, the online website of Wired magazine. Legend, of course, holds that the first banner ad was for AT&T and said, Have you ever clicked your mouse right here? You will. It was part of that famous You Will campaign that we mentioned in that episode. As we've seen, advertising struck early entrepreneurs as a logical revenue engine for the web. Leaving aside Mike Moritz's analogy to television and radio, everyone knew that magazines and newspapers had ads, and many early websites simply tried to emulate the sort of ads that sat alongside the content in printed media. Yahoo was no different. Yang and Philo didn't want ads to interrupt their directory, but... Ads around the directory might be okay. At the time, Yahoo liked to give the impression that it came to the advertising model reluctantly, but really there was no other feasible option for them. Yahoo's original business plan actually called for limited advertising as a way to monetize Yahoo's growing traffic. As early as April of 1995, soon after the original Sequoia investment, David Philo granted an interview with Advertising Age magazine. Under the headline, A Gaggle of Web Guides Vie for Ads, Yahoo Directory opens up to sponsorship deals as competition grows, Philo declared, quote, Because we are now backed by a third party, there's pressure to produce. Yahoo will have to become a money making enterprise. We're not sure if we want to start reviewing sites or continue to just list sites in a comprehensive fashion, but we are definitely going to integrate advertising into what we do, End quote. And if you'll remember, just last week we spoke with John Danner, the co-founder of NetGravity, which helped build Yahoo's first advertising software, and as John remembered it, quote, Yahoo had far less angst about advertising than almost anybody else in that era, End quote. Still, Yang and Philo wanted to tread lightly. Yahoo put a survey on its homepage asking users whether they would countenance ads, and the response was lukewarm acceptance. So when NetGravity powered the ads that first launched in August of 1995, there was the inevitable howls from a certain section of users that thought that Yahoo was selling out. But the protests quieted down after only a few weeks. The directory itself, of course, hadn't changed. It was just as useful as it always was. And so the users stayed loyal. Yahoo was at the forefront of bringing ads to the web as a way to pay for all the things that it was doing. And as mentioned above, many of the earlier entrepreneurs saw the web as being analogous to mass media in general and to print media in particular. And so Yahoo, like the rest of the industry, borrowed terms from existing media and advertising to describe what they were attempting to do. Individual websites were, of course, called sites, but components of those sites were called pages. It was easy to make the comparison to magazines and newspapers thus, and the individual pages that print media was always monetizing. But the internet promised to revolutionize advertising in a way that had never happened before. For decades, all advertising has been sold using a metric called CPM, or cost per milla. In Latin, milla means thousands, so CPM is essentially saying that an advertisement is priced and sold based upon how many thousands of people are exposed to that given ad. Imagine that the total cost of running a full-paged ad in a magazine is $50,000. Now, imagine that the magazine has a circulation of 4 million people. $50,000 divided by 4 million is .0125. CPM would be calculated by multiplying .0125 by 1,000. So, in this example, the advertisement in question has a CPM of $12.50. The advertiser is paying $12.50 to reach every thousand readers of that magazine. Most ads are billed in this CPM way, whether it's cost per thousand impressions for a billboard or cost for a thousand viewers of a television show. The funny thing is that it can be devilishly hard to measure the actual effectiveness of advertising. A famous quote that is attributed to the 19th and 20th century department store mogul John Wanamaker says, quote, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half, End quote. And this makes sense. You can pay for an ad in a magazine, but you'll never actually know how many readers will flip to that page and see the ad. And if a reader does actually flip to the page, how do you know if he or she actually notices the ad? The same is true for advertising on radio, television, movies, billboards, etc. An advertiser can buy a billboard on a highway that carries 30,000 commuters every single day, but who knows how many drivers actually look up and take notice of the billboard. This is why advertisers have always been obsessed with things like circulation numbers and rating points. Since one can only approximate how many people actually engage with a given advertisement, the only way to broadly guarantee an advertising campaign's effectiveness is to shoot for the largest targeted number of eyeballs or ears. Advertisers have always suspected that an ad is only ever effective on a small percentage of the audience it's attempting to reach, so, the best way to spend money effectively is to try to reach the largest audience of targeted, likely buyers. Online advertising promised to make this vague science obsolete. Because a computer serves up web pages, on the web it's possible to know the exact number of times a web page, and with it a, a given advertisement, is delivered. No more guesswork. An advertiser can know to the second, and often in real time, when their given block of thousand ads has been served up. Furthermore, the web allows an advertiser a better gauge of how many people ignore a given ad. Because each ad is clickable, often leading to the advertiser's own website or other traceable property, an advertiser now has a measurement of how many people interact with their ad. They can know how much of an impression the advertisement makes on an audience. In the language of the medium, this is called engagement. And beyond even this, there are the cookies, those little lines of software code that follow you around the internet once you visit a website or click on a web ad. Again, if you'll recall our interview with Lou Montulli, cookies were developed by Netscape all the way back at the very beginning. What users have been frequenting windsurfing websites recently? Cookies can tell you, as well as any advertisers who want to market to windsurfing enthusiasts. This is the holy grail of advertising from time immemorial, knowing exactly an audience's interests so that the ad man can market only to the most promising leads, preferably right at the moment when they're making a purchasing decision. The web seemed like the advertiser's promised land delivered. Each time a web page was loaded, this would be counted as an impression, for which an advertiser would pay on a CPM basis. A site like Yahoo, with millions of pages loaded every day, had a seemingly never-ending supply of these impressions. But what the advertiser was really after, eventually, was the clicks. Measuring click-through rate provided a greater measurement of advertising engagement down to the individual user. Forget about mere passive impressions, it was now possible to measure how often a user interacted with an ad. This made it easier for advertisers to calculate their return on investment by orders of magnitude. For the first time, it was possible to know which half of the advertising spend was being wasted and which was actually useful. Another promise of the web was how it fit into the historical advertising paradigm. There are only so many hours in a day, of course, so broadly speaking, advertisers are interested in how many hours of the day a given medium can capture your attention. How many hours a day does the average person listen to the radio or read the newspaper or watch television? Advertisers, especially the bigger ones, apportion their overall advertising spend based on what percentage of a given person's daily attention they can capture. The internet represented the first new advertising medium to come along since the advent of television. As Americans came online in increasing numbers, the internet promised to capture more and more of their time and attention. And so it was expected that advertisers would logically start to shift their advertising spend to try to advertise against this new attention center. And what would happen if the Internet proved to be more attention-getting than print or radio or even television? As always with the Internet, the sky seemingly was the limit. It is now almost axiomatic to acknowledge that the Internet can and will disrupt almost any legacy, quote, real-world industry. But the first industry that the Internet disrupted was advertising. Again, the interviews we've done in this chapter with early advertising pioneers are worth a listen to get a sense of how this process played out. Online advertising would be the raw revenue material that the dot-com era would be built upon. Online advertising's failure, conversely, would also be the pin that would eventually burst the dot-com bubble. But at the beginning, the promise of online advertising seemed limitless. Advertising was the easiest business plan to implement, both technically and practically, and it had the added benefit of subsidizing websites or services that, like Yahoo's, otherwise had to remain free. Thousands of websites and companies that would be founded in the coming years would follow Yahoo's example and use advertising to subsidize their quote-unquote real product. The pivot towards advertising was quickly very lucrative for Yahoo. Once the company turned on the advertising spigot, it ramped things up rapidly, signing on more than 80 sponsors in less than six months. The advertisers and the advertisements would only increase with Yahoo's growing traffic numbers. By the fourth quarter of 1996, the website could boast 550 different advertisers, including many of the Fortune 500 companies such as Walmart and Coca-Cola. This all led to an impressive 1,300% increase in Yahoo's revenues to $19.7 million in 1996. Being the Internet's best-known destination allowed Yahoo to command quite rich CPM rates in the $20 to $25 range. And since Yahoo's traffic continued to grow so rapidly, the company found it literally couldn't sell ads fast enough. By 1996, by some measures, as page views on Yahoo reached $14 a day, as much as 75% of Yahoo's potential ad space, or ad inventory, was going unsold. There was simply too much traffic to sell. Yahoo seemed to go from strength to strength in this period. Because the site had so successfully branded itself as the internet's version of the yellow pages, countless brands and retailers jockeyed to purchase valuable real estate on Yahoo's pages. As the dot-com era got into full swing, Yahoo found that new dot-com companies would be the prime candidates to compete viciously amongst themselves for prominent placement. For example, Amazon.com and CDNow.com could be played off one another to lead the advertisement on Yahoo for music sales. ETrade or Daytech Online would sign multi million dollar deals just to put online trading buttons on Yahoo. And it wasn't just retailers. When Yahoo decided to add news, weather, stock prices, and other curios to its directory, it found that media partners such as Reuters were eager to partner and provide content in exchange for a share of the advertising revenues. A Yahoo marketing executive would remember that Yahoo was perfectly positioned to take advantage as the internet mania took off. Quote, "There was a land grab. It was no one's fault, but lots of companies were overinvesting and trying to grow too fast. It's hard to blame Yahoo for that, but sure, we were right there taking the money." End quote. By 1997, the online advertising market neared $1 billion, and Yahoo alone was estimated to control 7.5% of the total. Yahoo's advertising base shot to 1,700 different advertisers, and these advertisers were chasing traffic that had skyrocketed to an astonishing 65 million page views per day. All of this, of course, led to a proportionate 257% rise in revenues to 70 million dollars Yahoo's stock price, of course, rose along with this, jumping 511% over the course of 1997. The company at this point had a market value of almost $4 billion. The world would come to think of Yahoo as one of the leaders of the new Internet era. Perhaps inevitably, Yahoo began to think of itself differently... The company headcount quintupled over the course of 1996 and doubled again in 1997, eventually reaching more than 400 people. This explosion of money, people, and traffic led to the commensurate increase in office space, hardware, and computing power. When Yahoo moved into a new 12,000-square-foot office space before going public, Jerry Yang recalled, We thought, this is great, we'll never fill this place up. In no time, they would add so many more offices that the company was spread out over 100,000 square feet of office space. Yahoo was certainly not short of money to invest in its own growth, thanks to the IPO. Foreign versions of Yahoo's site were launched in Asia and Europe. And as e-commerce was predicted to grow as quickly as online advertising, Yahoo wasted no time in experimenting with this market as well. In addition to various e-commerce partnerships where Yahoo enjoyed revenue-sharing arrangements, the company began offering its own version of an online mall, dubbed Yahoo Shopping. By the holiday season 1998, Yahoo was host to more than 3,000 different merchants. Yahoo began making strategic purchases to help it build out these new endeavors. It purchased a company called Viaweb, which allowed small merchants to set up shop on Yahoo, and eventually thousands of tiny storefronts bloomed, with Yahoo raking in monthly fees as a percentage of every sale. Strategic investments like that were also made possible thanks to the increasing value of Yahoo's stock. Rumor had it that in the case of the all-stock purchase of Viaweb, by the time the deal actually closed... Yahoo's stock price had appreciated so rapidly that the escrow for the deal ended up being worth more than the original deal price itself. The easy success Yahoo found in advertising and marketing changed the company's focus, as we've said. Yahoo continued to see itself not as a technology firm, but as a media firm. The desire for advertising dollars thus meant that Yahoo was now focusing on users and eyeballs and perhaps losing track of its original goal of cataloging the web. When the site was a simple directory of cool websites, Yahoo had been happy to send its users off its pages and out onto the furthest reaches of the web. But now that advertising was king, the company began to think of ways to keep users and keep them engaged on its own pages, consuming its own content, so that it could serve more of those lucrative advertisements. Yahoo wanted to be the first site that users browsed to when they logged onto the web, the last site users checked at the end of the day, and hopefully a site that users would return to countless times over the course of the day. To this end, Yahoo began to build out more and more related and hopefully complementary services, for example, news, horoscopes, sports scores, local community sites. All of this was in the service of generating a platform for more and more targeted advertising opportunities. When Jerry Yang gave an interview to Time Magazine in this period, he was beginning to sound a bit like a studio mogul. Quote, we began with simple searching, and that's still a big hit, our Seinfeld, if you will, but we've also tried to develop a must-see TV lineup. Yahoo Finance, Yahoo Chat, Yahoo Mail. We think of ourselves as a media network these days, end quote. A Wall Street analyst agreed, telling Businessweek, quote, you have to look at it, Yahoo, as the new media company for the 21st century, end quote. Yahoo was certainly not alone in this philosophical shift. By 1997-98, there was a new watchword, portal. Excite, AltaVista, Lycos, all of the search engines seemingly at once pivoted to become portals to the web, that site that users return to again and again and again. The search sites started customizing their offerings to individual users to try to reach this goal of stickiness. If a user created an account, the portal could then begin serving up content to suit the interests of each individual web surfer as they came back. The surfer got content based on their tastes, and the portals got information on their users that could be sorted demographically. If you revealed to your portal of choice that you were male or female of a certain age living in a certain area code, The portal could now deliver far more targeted and valuable advertisements based on the data you volunteered. Again, this is a precursor to the social media-based advertising we're now all used to. It was the advertising nirvana that the web had promised all along. And selling sponsorships, taking a cut of e-commerce, keeping users from clicking away, If this sounds eerily similar to AOL's walled garden strategy, that's kind of no accident. Yahoo and the other portals ran into the same web dichotomy that AOL struggled with at this time. The web was wild and anarchic. But like AOL, Yahoo increasingly aspired to package and aggregate this chaos. The rap on AOL always was that they tried to be like the web, but somehow better, or safer, or cleaner. Yahoo, for its part, was a web native, but it still needed to compete with the web in some ways in order to generate revenue. Unlike AOL, Yahoo didn't have the monthly dial-up fees to fall back on, and so more and more, Yahoo wanted to become a sort of AOL version 2.0. AOL, ironically enough, hedged its own bets by turning its AOL.com website into a Yahoo-like portal. Microsoft did the same thing when it found that its floundering MSN dial-up service wasn't quite as valuable as the MSN.com site that Internet Explorer loaded as the default homepage. So MSN.com also became a portal. Even Netscape found that its Netscape.com homepage was where millions of people by default started out on the web every day, and so it was a portal by default, and so it turned its homepage more portal-like and called it Netscape NetCenter. By 1997, in fact, NetCenter was generating $100 million in advertising and sponsorship revenue all by itself. The ensuing portal wars led to an arms race among all the relevant players that did a lot to accelerate the entrepreneurial and acquisitional mania that caught fire during the dot-com era. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And let me pause here to underscore this point. The Portal Wars, if we can call them that, were a major, if forgotten, contributor to what would become the dot-com-era bubble. In today's current internet era, startups dream of the multi-billion dollar IPO, of course. But they also dream of a multi-billion dollar purchase by one of the big existing web players, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, or yes, even Yahoo!, and this was true back then as well, but replace the modern players I just mentioned with Yahoo, Excite, AltaVista, etc. Purchasing a company to fill out your product portfolio is something that gained currency in this early Web 1.0 era, largely fueled by the keeping up with the Joneses arm race that the new search engines come web portals were running. If one portal added a new feature, say instant messaging, then all of the portals suddenly had to have their own version of that feature. Flush with the ever-increasing stock prices and burgeoning market caps, the portal players went on a mad shopping spree, snapping up startups left and right to add to their arsenals. I would argue that the crazy growth of the web made the dot-com-era speculative bubble inevitable, but the addition of the portal players with their multi-billion-dollar market caps just added fuel to the fire. Email gives us a good example of this arms race. Email is something that users check many times throughout the day, so adding free web-based email to a portal gave it that stickiness factor that would keep users coming back again and again. And by tying a user's personal email address to a given brand— portals could engender the sort of customer lock-in that encouraged user loyalty. But early on, email was neither free nor web-based. Your email address was something assigned to you by your ISP, like AOL, or by your employer or university. And you could only access it through that service or provider. Today, we're used to free, almost disposable email addresses, but In those early days of the internet, email addresses were actually something of a scarce commodity. If there is a Hall of Fame for my god, why didn't I think of that great ideas, then Sabir Bhatia and Jack Smith deserve prominent places inside it. Sometime in 1995, the idea that these two low-level Apple employees had was simply to put email on the web. That way, people could check their email anywhere, at work, at home, on the road, anywhere there was a web browser and internet access. Users could pick their own email address that way. They could separate their personal lives from their professional lives. So good was this idea, and so mind-blowingly obvious was it to Bhatia, that when Smith first called on his cell phone to suggest the idea, Bhatia told him, quote, Call me back on a secure line when you get to your house. We don't want anyone to overhear," End quote." Batia wrote up a business plan for the idea, but refused to even make copies for fear that someone else would see it and beat them to the punch. When Batia made the rounds at venture capital firms, he actually pitched a dummy startup concept instead of the web-based email idea that was in his back pocket. If the VC in question rejected the dummy startup for what Batia considered to be the right reasons, only then would he share with them his real idea, a simple, seemingly obvious concept that would come to be called Hotmail. Hotmail.com launched on the web July 4th, 1996. In little more than a year and a half, Hotmail would go on to claim 25 million users. At the time, this meant that Hotmail was actually the fastest-growing media company in history, growing faster than Netscape, faster than AOL, and faster than Yahoo, even. Such phenomenal growth was the result of a clever marketing tactic, like seemingly every other one of these companies we've been discussing. But this one was a little different. Every time a user sent an email using Hotmail's free webmail accounts, a small link was added on to the bottom of the email message that read, Hotmail. Free, trusted, and rich email service. Get it now. So, every time an email was sent, the sender was unwittingly promoting Hotmail's service on their behalf. In fact, the very act of using Hotmail... Help spread the word about Hotmail. This kind of marketing is now called viral marketing, the practice of promotion by rabid user word of mouth. Today, in this era of social media, it's the very foundation of modern marketing strategy, but in Hotmail's era, it was very much new and revolutionary. Hotmail's timing was impeccable. They had developed a free web based email product right at the time when the large portals were looking for such things. Suddenly, everybody seemed to need a free email service as a component of their portal strategy. Yahoo came calling, but lost out to Microsoft, who on New Year's Eve 1997 purchased Hotmail for $400 million in stock. Not bad for two years of work and an idea that even its founders thought was so obvious anyone could have done it. For its part, Yahoo made do with the purchase of a Hotmail competitor, Rocketmail. Yahoo was able to purchase Rocketmail's parent company, 411, for a comparatively cheap $94 million, and Rocketmail was quickly rebranded as Yahoo Mail. Lycos, for its part, added mail by buying WhoWare. And even Netscape launched a free email service by licensing the necessary technology from a startup called USANet. Acquisition frenzies like these jump the dot-com frenzy because the portals wanted to be all things to all people. Sometimes they would launch new services in-house, but more often than not, the pressure to stay ahead of competing portals meant that they purchased startups that could give them what they needed sooner rather than later. One month it might be maps. The next month it was movie trailers. The month after that it was classifieds. When the online greeting card became hot, Excite bought an online greeting card company called Blue Mountain Arts for $780 million. In every case, there was some small startup somewhere that could be purchased to help the portals keep up with the Joneses. As we've said, Startup Fever was incubated by the enormous riches easy IPOs could bring companies and their founders. But who needed IPOs when you could flip your online calendar startup to a portal for a cool $60 million. Yahoo was by no means immune to this acquisition fever. On the contrary, you could say that they were among the worst offenders. In addition to 4.11 and its Rocket Mail, here's a quick list of Yahoo's biggest acquisitions from before the dot-com bus, just as reference. A site called ClassicGames.com was turned into Yahoo Games. When Yahoo decided to get into e-commerce, it purchased Yo-Yo Dine for around thirty million dollars. Yo-Yo Dine, by the way, was founded by someone you might recognize, Seth Godin. And as we've described, the company Viaweb was purchased for forty-nine million and became Yahoo Stores. Viaweb was founded by Paul Graham of Y Combinator fame, by the way. And as the dot-com mania really kicked into high gear, things got even crazier. If you remember GeoCities, then you might remember that they were purchased by Yahoo for $3.6 billion in 1999. And of course, the reason that Mark Cuban is a billionaire today is because Yahoo purchased his broadcast dot-com for $5.7 billion that same year. An executive at Hotmail liked to call the portals trailer park businesses, because he said they were like tornadoes, quote, looking for a trailer park to sweep up, end quote. A quick anecdote can describe what the environment was like at the time. Joe Beninato, the founder of an online calendar startup called WEN.com, took a meeting with Yahoo hoping to get a distribution partnership. Before he could even make his pitch, though, the discussion turned to Yahoo purchasing Win.com outright. This struck Beninato as a bit nutty since Win.com at the time had not even launched yet. Quote, We didn't really have anything. We were a couple months old. End quote. But that didn't matter to Yahoo or any of the other portals. The portals had decided that they needed to provide people with calendar services, and so they went out and bought them. Yahoo didn't end up buying WEN.com, but AOL eventually did for $225 million. In a way, all of this is the old platform strategy rearing its head again. The portals were a platform for advertising, and all of the features they added—today we'd call them apps—were just bells and whistles that attracted an audience to feed the advertising beast. The money was sloshing around because the search sites come web portals were very much at the vanguard of the dot-com era. At the time, even third-tier portals could generate membership and traffic numbers in the tens of millions of people, more of an audience than the largest newspapers in the world could boast. The continued existence today, the legacy presence of Excite.com or Lycos.com email addresses, illustrates how successful the portals actually were in giving people comfortable home bases on the nascent web. By 1998, it was estimated that the search-slash-portal sites controlled 86% of all the advertising on the Internet. Because online advertising seemingly had unlimited growth ahead of it, the search-slash-portal sites seemed like the one sure thing to bet on if you were looking for long-term success on the Internet. Eventually, even old media began to sense that the portals were the sort of new media play that they needed a piece of. NBC invested in a portal startup called Snap.com. Disney bought 43% of Infoseek to help it launch its ill-fated Go.com portal. And search sites and portals proliferated so rapidly that Businessweek joked that, quote, one day we may need a search engine just to find the right search engine. End quote. Sure enough, in fact, new portals eventually launched to do just that. They were called meta-search engines, and one search returned results from multiple other search sites. The portals were the rock stars of the early web era, and like good rock stars, each of them burned incredibly brightly, even though most of them were eventually destined to flame out, sometimes explosively. Excite Merged with a broadband startup called At Home, in a 6.7 billion dollar deal. At the height of the bubble, Lycos was acquired by the Spanish telecommunications giant Telefonica for 12.5 billion. As we've seen, Disney bought Infoseek and eventually ran it into the ground. And Alta Vista was sold to CMGI an internet investing company who tried to spin the site out with its own IPO, but the collapse of the dot-com bubble prevented that. The one site and company that lasted the test of time was the leader all along, Yahoo. Yahoo was the web's first great company, which is ironic since it was never really a tech company at heart. It helped incubate and launch a great many online services and innovations under its portal umbrella, but at its core, Yahoo has always been what it admitted to being early on, a media company, an advertising company. And there's no denying that that worked out very well for them. By the year 2000, Yahoo could boast more than 190 million visitors a month. All those eyeballs were served advertising that had pushed Yahoo's revenues over the $1 billion mark per year. After the stock rose 517% in 1997, Yahoo's stock rose 584% the year after that. At its peak towards the end of the dot com bubble, Yahoo had a market cap of $128 billion making it worth more than twice as much as an old media company such as Disney. $1,000 invested in Yahoo at the time of its IPO was worth almost $80,000 at the height of its market cap a few short years later. But while Yahoo enjoys the reputation of being a web pioneer and survivor, it's not today widely considered to be an internet powerhouse. This is because, despite its roots in search and despite forging a trail for internet advertising as a business model, Yahoo was destined to miss out on perhaps the greatest business that the internet has yet produced. Another company would eventually come along and fix the problem of search, make search work reliably for the first time. And in doing so, that company would prove that Search itself is perhaps the greatest advertising medium ever devised by man. The company that would do all this and supplant Yahoo! would be founded by two other Stanford University students. Their names were Sergey Brin and Larry Page, and of course the company that they formed would be called Google.